0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And in our previous episode, we shared the first part of our interview with Dr. Annie Polland, who is Senior Director of Education and Programs at the Tenement Museum on New York's Lower East Side. And Annie told us in that first episode about the discovery of the building that would eventually house the museum and the neighborhood there on the Lower East Side as it developed from the 1860s to the 1930s. Today, we're going to learn some more about the ongoing research that's happening at the museum, along with programs and plans for the museum. We're also going to talk a little bit about one of our favorite topics, which is food, uh, as it relates to telling the story of immigration in New York. Yeah, there's some really fun stuff coming up. Do you have uh, a favorite story or stories of some
1: of the residents that lived at 97 Orchard? That is such a hard question because I think for all the family, you know, every family is fascinating. You know, it's kind of like picking who's your favorite child. (laughs) (laughs) If you had like seven children and had to pick one, who was the most interesting. So, well, you know, the, the, one of the, the woman who fascinates me the most is a woman named Goldie Lusgarden. And she and her husband, um, ran a kosher butcher shop at 97 Orchard from approximately 1889 to 1902. Um, she was the mother of six children. She raised her children in an apartment right behind the butcher store. She probably worked six days a week alongside her husband. In fact, we have a picture of the Lustgarden family um, standing outside of their shop, and all of them, every one of them, I believe, is wearing an apron, including their little five-year-old son, William. So this was a family that worked together. And um, I'm always fascinated by her, thinking about how she'd be raising her family while also helping to run a business. And the story becomes even more complicated because – Um, in May of 1902, the price of kosher meat went up. The wholesalers raised the price. And the retail butchers tried to, um, they boycotted. They tried to get the wholesalers to back down because they knew their customers couldn't afford that steep rent, uh, that steep, that steep price increase. Um, but the wholesalers didn't back down. And the retailers, in many ways, really had no choice but to start selling the meat again because they were in a vulnerable Position. They had to pay rent for their spaces. They had to, you know, keep their businesses going. So they open up, but the women of the neighborhood, um, they organize and they start a boycott. And so the women in the neighborhood are able to effectively, you know, give speeches, rally everyone basically to stop buying meat. They get the attention of newspaper reporters, both the Yiddish reporters and the reporters uptown. And so they carry out this really intense, really powerful consumer protest and consumer strike. And sometimes at some point in, in, um, the, the, the protest became violent. And we know that in May of 1902, May 17th, 1902, um, someone attacked the Lustgarden shop because we have a picture of 97 orchard with the window broken. Um, and so I think about what it was like for Goldie Lustgarden to, in some ways, really understand why the women were striking because she herself was a woman who had to manage the funds and provide for her kids, and she probably really understood the position that the housewives were in in protesting that rent increase – I'm sorry, in, in that price increase. But she was torn because she had to run her store. So I, I just think that she must have been a really um, – interesting woman and that she had to deal with a lot of complicated um, subjects and really she stands in for all of these immigrant women who were raising children but they were also business people whether they were running their own shops or simply managing a family household meant that you had to be business minded because a lot of these women in order to afford the rent for the apartments, um, needed to act as many landladies in the sense that they found boarders who would rent a space within the apartment and pay the housewife as the kind of the sub landlady of the apartment. So everyone took on boarders and able to make rent. So the housewives were not only taking care of the boarders, they were taking care of their children. And then Goldie Luskart on top of that is taking care of a store. And then she has to kind of deal with this political protest. So she's kind of my, hero in the sense of thinking about someone who's able to deal with a lot of um, stress.
0: That's such an amazing story. She could be a whole episode of ours on her own.
1: It could, you know, and then the story to kind of, and I, we don't know too much about this, but um, we always like to find out what we can about the descendants and um, Goldie Lustgarden's oldest daughter, her name was Fanny, And she got married, and she and her husband, Mr. Grabard, ran a uh, restaurant for many years on the Lower East Side. They had uh, several children, one of whom was a, a daughter named Blossom, and Blossom grew up to become a lawyer, and she worked for city government in the 50s and 60s. So it's kind of amazing to think like a strong woman in 1900 is a housewife and maybe running a store. But by within two generations... A lawyer. And I, I think that tells the story of American opportunity um, and what American education can do
0: love it. I love it. Um cool. <laughs> I do. I love it. I get so excited about those stories. Those are the kind of stories that Tracy and I both just really glom onto when we're doing research. So I understand your enthusiasm completely.
1: Yeah, and it gets, and it's kind of fun to I me mean, in some ways that question of what's my favorite story. Sometimes my favorite stories are the ones that we find out about but we haven't yet been able to interpret because 7,000 people lived at 97 Orchard, but we can't tell all of their stories, right? So we have careful decision process is made about which story to tell at what time. We want to make sure we're representing different immigrant ways and, um, different kinds of stories emerge. We want to be able to tell stories that represent the range of occupations. You know, all sorts of considerations go into selecting a family apartment to interpret. But we came across recently, um, a newspaper article from 1910 that describes a baker who lived at 97 Orchard who was so distraught over his unemployment um, and that he he jumped out the window and committed suicide. Now, that story would be a really hard story to tell for a number of reasons, but I think it's an important story because it speaks to the levels of stress that these immigrants endured. And of course, the, the headline of that story was, life fails to stop <laughs> husbands you know jump to death um, because the Wife had come in and tried to stop him from. He had like a knife and she tried, she pulled the knife away from him and then he ran to the window and jumped out the window. But what that woman then had to deal with after losing her husband, losing her, you know, potential source of income, and then, you know, even if she had to see that newspaper headline that says she was the one that prevent, prevented him from from the suicide. Oof. The, yeah. <laughs> That's it. That I mean,
0: those sorts of discoveries, I'm sure, are like that. You have that combination of. This is so cool, but also really tragic, but also really cool, but also really tragic right and,
1: right, I mean, and then we also try to, as much as possible link our stories to contemporary issues, so the Baldizi family um came to America in the nineteen twenties um Adolfo came in 1923, worked as a carpenter, and then he sent for his wife, Rosaria. And she comes over, but yet there's no documentation for her because by the time he sends for her, those laws have been passed. The National Origins Act, I'm sorry, the, the Johnson Reed Act makes it really difficult for Italians to get in. But yet we know she gets here, even though there's no record for her at Ellis Island. We know she gets here because they have children um in 1928 and uh, a year later. And so, um, Rosaria, we can tell is an und- undocumented immigrant. And so it's interesting to kind of tell that story and be in the home of the Baldessis, um, and then have visitors kind of bring up their, um, questions about the topic today. So we don't want to preserve history just to kind of lock it away in a box or to think about our building as a kind of dollhouse that's quaint and, and nice to look at. Rather, we want, um, you know, the, the, the richness of the layers within our building to be paired with really intricate thought provoking stories based on primary sources um, and told through um, engaging stories that really get visitors to make connections between their own lives and the stories and between past and present.
0: That might be the answer to the next questions I was going to ask you, which is since you run programs in education, like what is the most important takeaway for visitors for you? Like what is your priority and goal for your education and tour programs?
1: I think there are a couple goals, right? I mean, I think we want, first of all, we want people to engage with history. We want people to be exposed to the richness of the details in history. We want people to hold primary sources in their hands and try to analyze them and to let them know that they too are historians, right? That with the proper documents, with the proper information, with you know knowing what other historians have said about general trends, we all are able to interpret and analyze history. So history is not just um, something historians should do. It's something that we all can engage with. So that's one thing. I would think another thing is to really think about the idea of maybe applied history. Once we know this history, what do we do with it? And it's not up for the museum to say, now that you know this history, you should vote this way or do this thing. But now you know the story, know that there are many sides to a story, know that stories are complicated, and apply that way of thinking to everything that you engage with in in society. So kind of teaching people to look at things from a variety of perspectives is, I think, another goal. Um, I think, you know, another thing that we don't, it's hard to describe, but our museum is very unique because... Rather than have people walk around on their own, we have them take tours with others. They're they're led by educators. And I think that's one of the most, you know, in addition to the building, it's the educators that are our most valued um, asset at the museum. Because our educators are the ones that bring the story to life. But our educators are also the ones that help people forge connections to one another. So the tours are like a community you know, all of a sudden you have to like be in a group with 14 other strangers um, and you're going to learn history together. And I, how uh, how often are adults put into positions where they're with other strangers and they're going to learn together? And I think there's something really valuable about that. You can't really plan it. Um, and I think that's that kind of spontaneity and excitement also um, is part of the tour. So I guess one of the goals of our tours is to kind of think of ourselves as members of a society and listen to each other with respect and um learn and, and learn from each other and, and the stories that we all have, you know, and to recognize that each individual has a story.
0: Which is kind of a nice mirror of really what was probably going on in the tenement building, like that people that did not know each other were suddenly there together figuring things out
1: absolutely right so now yeah that's the great thing we're not going to make you move into this 325 square foot space with one another and we're not going to collect rent from you but we're going to give you the ability to like be in a room with a bunch of strangers that maybe came from different parts of the world just like you know people living in the tenement would have been exposed to people of different cultures that's going to also happen on the tour that's a really good point
0: What sorts of ongoing research projects is the museum involved in? I know you're constantly researching the people that lived there, uh, and sort of those stories, but what else do you guys branch out into?
1: So, yeah, so, you know, we've been talking a lot about 97 Orchard, but 97 Orchard is only one venue in a way for the, for the stories that we tell we now offer five walking tours. So we not only research our building, but we research different sites in the neighborhood and we tell um, an array of stories based on the built environment that surrounds us, the Lower East Side. So there's a way in which you could say the Lower East Side is our, is our playground as well, at least our interpretive. Space, um, and so we have, um, and and I think one of the best ways to experience the museum is to go on a building tour and then go on a walking tour, so that you're able to kind of put those two things together. Because even the people who lived in the tenements in 1900 or in 1920 or in 1880, none of those people would have spent their whole life in the in the tenement, right? Especially when it's so crowded, you're going to want to get outside. So our walking tours um, give us the opportunity to kind of trace the steps of some of the people who might have lived in 97 Orchard. To see the civic societies or the newspaper buildings or the synagogues or the churches or the schools or the movie theaters that they would have spent time in as well. And um, one of the nice things about the Lower East Side is that you, ours is not the only historic building. There are many historic buildings on the Lower East Side, and you can get a sense of the streetscape. Um, And so you can kind of use the Lower East Side to imagine the past, but at the same time, and this really kind of builds into our mission of connecting past to present, we can tell stories of um, contemporary immigrants who are in the neighborhood today um, and contemporary shopkeepers who are in the neighborhood today. So it becomes a really dynamic experience when you're walking through the neighborhood and you learn about the past, but you're also observing the present. And I would say the last I mean another frontier of our research is that we are going to be interpreting um 103 Orchard, which is a building um the museum owns on the corner of Orchard and Delancy and it's um, been serving as our shop, and it's been serving as a place for classrooms where our 50,000 school children are able to learn. Um, but we are now um, doing research on the um, third floor of that building, um, and we're researching stories of people who lived in that building um, post-World War II years. So, you know, 97 Orchard, we can only tell the stories of families who lived there um before 1935, because after 1935, no families lived there, although there were stores. But the story of family, immigrant and migrant life takes up right at one three orchard. And that's what we're trying to do is extend our narrative to be able to tell the story as we move into more, you know, more recent decades. We're also able to diversify the stories that we tell. So we're able to tell the story of a family um, who survived the Holocaust and came here to start a new life. We're able to tell the story of Puerto Rican migrants um, and also the story of Chinese immigrants who came after 1965, after the the quota laws from the 1920s were were taken away. And um, America, again, became a, a much more welcoming place.
0: You have a lot on your plate I
1: know, I'm getting stressed <laughs> talking to you. But it's so <laughs> exciting. Like, I need to go back to my desk.
0: <laughs> but it's so exciting. Like, I I love the idea of seeing, like, the post-World War II stuff develop and where that's going to go. Uh Do you have any other exciting future plans? Or does that, that's plenty to talk about already. <laughs> uh, well,
1: you know, one other thing I wanted to talk about, just to give a little bit, like, a little bit more, uh, kind of like an angle on how people experience the museum. One of the, I think, in New York today, of the population is immigrant. And if you include immigrants and children, you get closer to 60%. So we're really aware, um, especially in the work that we do with our school children, that immigration is a story that is really important now. And um, we have a program that we're working on with um, school children where they tell us their immigrant story as well. And we're creating a website and a virtual tour of all of these objects so the students come they experience the museum through the tours we then send educators back into their classrooms and we review how they learned about immigrant history through objects of the family and then we transition into the students sharing objects or trying to brainstorm objects that tell their own family histories Um, and so kids come up with the most exciting and unusual things last year in a school in Brooklyn you know one classroom had students from um, Barbados and Malaysia and China and Russia and Poland um, and Bangladesh and Pakistan, and as well as um, students who were the descendants of Irish, Italian and, and Jewish immigrants. And they came up with an array of objects, including, you know, an Ecuadorian sheep whistle that was used to call sheep together from the, the, the girl's father had done this. A Polish girl brought in an Easter basket that her, that she had brought over, I think as well. Um, a teacher brought a teacup that his um grandmother had brought over from Italy. Um, people brought in lockets, people brought in pictures, someone brought in an airplane ticket because that immigration story was so recent, but that ticket told their story. People also brought in recipes, um, recipes for sweet potato pie from North Carolina to include the migration story. Um, people brought in um, prayer mats, so Muslim prayer mats that were that are used for prayer five times a day. And the boy said that when they use it, they can sometimes smell the grandparents that had used it, um, before coming from Bangladesh, so we really like tactile, um objects, an array of them, and it's fascinating because you start to see these individual stories that the students have, but when you put them all together, you kind of see that no matter where people came from or at what time period they arrive that there's a lot of commonality in the immigrant experience because a lot of it is dealing with you know adapting to America thinking about how to preserve traditions thinking about how to become american um so this project is really really fun and so we'll be able to exhibit it on our website and we're calling it your story our stories I love that whole idea
0: because i one of the things that's important to me is we're all making history all the time right <laughs>
1: And I feel like this, this project, and it's time consuming, and it, you know, it takes a lot of like, you know, multi-sessions, and, but, I mean, the children have this time to develop their story, they're able to write about it, so it meets curriculum needs, they're able to upload it, they're able to take a photo of it, and they kind of become historians. Um, and then we have an exhibit at the end, where the students are able to exhibit their work and their parents come and then their parents are able to see their story as part of an American curriculum.
0: That's so cool. We have
1: a program. We have a free program at night called Tenement Talks. And at Tenement Talks, we're able to take a lot of the issues that come up in the tenement during the day with our visitors and explore them in more detail. So we have tonight, for example, we have um, people talking about immigrant foodways. We have people talking about New York architecture. We have um, authors talking about their new book. So this is um, Tenement Talks, and it's a public program, absolutely free. And we invite you to check us out, all of you New Yorkers and for those of you who aren't in New York um, the recordings of the um, of the tenement talks are also online at, on our website and so I, come um, and
0: come to those and I think there have been a, have there been more than one about food because that's in my wheelhouse for sure
1: <laughs> yeah you know what and we have we just uh, finalized one for this week. so we've done ones on food um, my favorite one was we did there was a Yiddish cookbook author Um And we looked at her cookbook and then from 1901 and was uh, we cooked some of the recipes from that as well. But there's one coming up this season on June 3rd in which we have a cookbook that's been newly translated from the Yiddish. It's the Vilna Vegetarian Cookbook written in 1938. Um, and the recipes are astounding because it's thing, you know, this woman was using like celeriac and she was using, um, Jerusalem artichokes in her food. And so we're gonna discuss, uh, we're going to discuss and explore the history with the woman who translated the book, but then we also have Amanda Cohen who's the owner of Dirt Candy, which is this amazing, um, vegetarian restaurant on the Lower East Side. So we'll be looking at vegetarian food, the women who cook it and the women who write about it, um, all together past and present i love it
0: uh we have lots of listeners that love our food episodes so i knew they will be interested in that Excellent.
1: And, oh and hey. we have uh, we have jennifer ate lee and her new documentary on jennifer um and her new documentary on um general Tso's chicken on april 1st so that's another great food story i think
0: i have heard her speak about that she did a ted talk about it didn't she Yes, she's great. It's excellent. It's so good if you're into, again, food at all. It's just fascinating on the history of how that came to be. So I'm sure that is going to be an awesome uh little... Uh, my brain just exploded. <laughs> I <laughs> got. I literally exploded. got so excited thinking about chicken. <laughs> 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 uh So that's going to be an awesome and delectable little bit of info, I'm sure. And I know that you kind of think in these terms... Uh All the time. I read an interesting article that you wrote for Huffington Post last year about what a tenement museum that opened in 2064 would look like and how it would reflect right. today's immigration, uh, which is a great read. I recommend it to all of our listeners if they're even marginally interested in this. It's a, a really good way to kind of look at it and contextualize. Like I said, we are making history all the time, every day. Um Annie, this is such a delight. Thank you so much for sharing all of your information with us. You're like an encyclopedia. Oh, sure. I'm for so this. glad you liked that article. Oh, I That's loved so nice. it. Um, and I know the Tenement Museum website, uh, which we will link to in our show notes, has no joke. I am not exaggerating when I say a. Wealth of information. You guys have so much educational material there. There is a podcast there that people can listen to if they want to. Uh, where can they find you online? What are great ways to kind of contact the Tenement Museum and you if you want that uh, <laughs> and
1: kind of sure. reach out? <laughs> So um, our website is www.tenement.org, um, and what you also should do is stay tuned for late 2015 we'll be putting up a virtual tour and that your story, our stories um, exhibit will be online as well so keep checking back but our website is a great place um, to find information and I think the best way to experience the, the tenement is to come visit us. If you want to contact me um, my email is apolland at tenement.org and we're interested in your immigration and migration stories as well. We're not just collecting the stories of the students. We want to hear your stories too. So you can be in, if you have a story you'd like to contribute, um, you can email me that as well. Fantastic. Um, again,
0: thank you so much for spending time with us today and I, like I said, you're a busy woman. you got a lot going on, so I really appreciate it. you. <laughs> So I, I think I was out of the office when you did this uh interview. Yeah, so I got to listen to it with totally fresh ears as though I were a podcast listener. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I hope everyone else did also. Annie's amazing. She just she's such a wealth of information. And because history is her background, like. You can just hear the passion of of sort of all of their projects uh, when she speaks. I really had a great time talking to her. Uh, and now I have some listener mail. This is from our listener, Amber, and it is about our uh Leo Bakeland episode. She says, recently I was listening to your podcast about the father of plastics. Fascinating fellow. I think I would have liked to have met him. Me too. Uh And finally, I had something worth your time. She's. Earlier in the email, she mentioned she had yet to find the perfect thing to write to us about. She said, I am enclosed a picture of something which I inherited, my great-grandmother's 1950s Bakelite radio. It's fully restored and in perfect working order. The gentleman who did the restoration said it was quite rare to find a colored piece and to be very careful when cleaning it. When I first received it, I was rather nonplussed, but now it is one of my most cherished possessions. Uh, having an understanding of the historical importance and having it in working order has changed it in my mind from an ugly pink radio to an amazing bit of technology that cannot be replaced. I hope this reaches you well. Uh, that's such a cool thing. She sent us this picture and it's a lovely little kind of pale pink radio. It is very exactly what you think of when you think of 1950s styling. And I, I'm so sort of blown away that it's working and she's had it, you know, looked at and that it's, it's, uh, not just a perfectly preserved piece of history, but a perfectly preserved and working piece of history. I love it. Uh, if you would like to write to us and share your historical connections, either through your magical bakelite Collection or anything else you'd like to talk about, you can do that at history Podcast at com. You can also find us on Twitter at mist history, at facebook.com slash mist in history, at mist history.tumblr.com, and at pinterest.com slash mist in history. We are also at Spreadshirt history.spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase your very own in History goodies. Uh, if you want to do some additional uh, investigating about the Tenement Museum, you can find them, I think Annie mentioned it at the end of that interview, but we'll do it again at www.tenement.org and on Twitter at Tenement Museum. Uh, if you would like to do a little bit of research about related topics, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in the word landlords in the search bar and you will get an article called How Landlords Work. If you would like to visit us on the web, that address is mistinhistory.com And we have an archive of all of our episodes, show notes for all of the episodes since Tracy and I have joined the podcast, as well as uh, once in a while we'll post a little something as a blog. And if you would like to visit us, we highly encourage you to do so. So those addresses, again, are mistinhistory.com and housedoveworks.com.